Um, good morning, my name is Eric. Um, going to be continuing uh, in Book of Mark. If you don't mind, I'm just going to take a quick moment to pray uh, before we get started in Mark chapter 7. <clears throat> um, Lord, I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, to communicate here. I pray, Father, that um, the things that I uh, communicate would be the things that you would uh, desire to have your people hear. Father, as I contemplate um, this passage of Scripture, I'm reminded of the prayer of of Hezekiah in Isaiah 38, where he said, Behold, it was from my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Grateful for the work that you've done in Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> okay, we, we're picking up here in Mark 7, um, I brought with me a book, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, let me start by saying this. The, um, sometimes what Mark records in the book of Mark are parables where Jesus says, well, the kingdom of heaven is like this, and then he gives an example, some sort of a word picture. But sometimes I think what Mark does is he records stories of Jesus doing things. And these are sort of like living parables. They're meant to direct our attention to what God is doing in the process of renewing all things. So last week, Jesus went outside the boundaries of Israel and he healed or he cast out a demon from the Syrophoenician woman's son. And Josh did a great job of explaining that that, that story was a word picture and it was meant to point us in the direction that what God is doing in renewing all things transcends any ethnic or geographic boundary. So sometimes Mark gives us these stories of Jesus doing things, and I think they are living word pictures that are meant to point us to help better understand what God is doing. <clears throat> in order to understand this particular passage, I think we have to start uh, way back. And so I brought this book with me, and I don't even know why I brought it, because I really just needed the title. I'm not going to open it or read any, any portion of it. It's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's by a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga. He calls it a breviary of sin. And his thesis in this book, and I think one of the main themes of the Bible, is that when we contemplate human suffering, whatever it may be, whatever form it may take, that it's in some way related back to what the Bible calls sin. Now, sometimes that's really easy to see, right? So I've got a friend or a roommate, and we get into an argument, and uh, in a fit of anger, I say something stupid to that person, and it hurts them. And then when, when tempers sort of calm down, and I think about it, I, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. That's so stupid. And I feel guilt, and I feel shame. And they feel hurt. Right? And there's a rift in the relationship, and it's very clear. I can draw a straight line between some stupid bonehead thing I've done and the suffering I've caused. And they can draw a really clear line between this bonehead thing that, that I've done and their own suffering. Right? So sometimes it's really easy. Sometimes it's, it's not that easy to see a connection. A good friend of mine recently told me, um, a brother in Christ in this church here told me that he knows a young woman, early 30s, just got notified that she has cervical cancer. And you think, that's not the way it's supposed to be. 
That's, she's 33. That is not the way it's supposed to be. But you can't draw a straight line to any moral thing that she's done or somebody else has done in her life to cause that. However, the Bible does sort of trace that all the way back. So let me just call to mind. We're not going to turn there. I'll just call to mind for you the story of our our forefathers in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. I think this is a crucial story that lays the foundation for everything else that God is doing and all that Mark is trying to communicate about the renewal of all things. You remember the story. Adam and Eve are living. They're dwelling with God, physically present with him in this garden. It's this beautiful place, this paradise. And he says one thing. He says, hey, look, there's a tree in the middle. It's the knowledge of the tree, of the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat anything you want. Just don't eat that fruit. Because in the day you eat that, you're going to die. Sure enough, they violated God's expectations for them. And they eat this fruit. And if you recall in Genesis 3, God, when he comes to them and meets them to deal with this issue, he does not curse Adam and Eve. You remember this. He curses two things. He curses the serpent, and he says, hey, look, on your, you're going to run around on your belly, and you're going to eat dust and all kinds of things. And then he curses the ground, and he says to Adam, you know, you're still going to raise crops, and you're going to plant things, and you're going to get, but you're also going to get thorns and thistles. Just nastiness is going to spring up with it. And Paul carries this thought all the way into the New Testament. So we see in verses like, for example, Romans 8, verse 20, where Paul says the creation, this world around us, has been subjected to futility. And he likens it in verse 22 to a woman going through labor, the pain of childbirth. That's what the world, the creation, is feeling. And it's just groaning and it's moaning and it's waiting for the final redemption, where those types of calls, like, you've got cancer, those, those are no more, right? And so there's just suffering sometimes that we can't put a finger on, but it's in some way related, at least to our first parents in the garden and the trajectory of human history. And so we meet here Jesus, who's confronted with that type of suffering, Not the first kind, the kind where you can draw a straight line, but the second kind where it's like there's this man and he's he's deaf and he's, he's mute. And why? We have no idea. The story doesn't tell us. That's not what's important here. Okay. So verse 31, it starts with Jesus returning to the region of Tyre. Um. Uh. Sorry. He's sorry. (laughs) He's returned from the region of Tyre and Sidon back to the Sea of Galilee. And you'll recall uh, last week when Josh spoke, he had a map up and he showed you that Jesus was traveling outside of the geographic bounds of Israel. He went northwest by the Mediterranean Sea to these two cities, Tyre and the north of that Sidon. And here we pick him up coming back down southeast to the northern end of Israel around the Sea of Galilee to a region called the Decapolis. It's, there's 10 cities there. That's, that's what the name stands for. But as you're reading this and you hear, oh, Decapolis, In verse 31, you immediately think, oh yeah, Mark 5. When Jesus was last in the Decapolis, what did he do? He cast out a demon named Legion, or many demons named Legion, unclear, from a man. And remember, that guy then wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus said, nope, go back into the towns and tell everybody the great things that God has done for you. And so that's what this man did, and he must have been successful, because in verse 32, as soon as Jesus arrives... It says, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Who is they? We have no idea. 
just the nameless, faceless people in the area, and they bring someone to Jesus. In some ways, they're sort of the hero of the story. We'll talk about that later. But they bring this man to Jesus. And Jesus does this miraculous healing, takes him away privately and heals him, touches his ears in verse 33, spits on his finger and presumably touches the man's tongue with the spit. Like, what's going on? It's really weird. He looks up to heaven and he sighs. This is not the way it's supposed to be, right? That's what they are saying. They're bringing Jesus. This man is disabled. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus sighing. This isn't right. And then he speaks in Aramaic, the language that these people would have understood, the local language, not in Hebrew, not in the language of the Bible, in Aramaic, and says, Epaphitha, be opened. Verse 35, his ears are open. And he begins to speak plainly. Now we're going to pick up our, our sort of real uh, um, interrogating this, this passage right here in verse 36. So after this miracle happens, the first thing Jesus does is he charges them not to say anything. But the more he charges them, the more zealously they proclaim it. So here's the, here's the first point that just is sort of a parenthetical point, is that when God does an amazing work of renewal in your life or in the life of someone you know and love, when, it's, when God really grabs a hold of somebody, it is impossible to keep quiet about it. It's impossible to keep quiet about it. Even God himself, Jesus is like, hey, look, don't, don't go tell people. But the more he tells them that, the more zealously they go out to proclaim it. And I think Jesus is being strategic here. We know from a, a passage in John that at a certain point when Jesus was teaching and doing miracles that the people tried to take him by force and make him king. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's not time yet. My time hasn't come. That's sort of the idea. He's being strategic about when that'll happen. But the more he charges them, the more zealously. I can't believe it. And why are they so astonished? Verse 37, it says, they're astonished beyond measure. That's a very tame way of saying that they were completely beside themselves. Astonished beyond measure. That's such a weird phrase. They were, they were flabbergasted. They were like, I can't believe what just happened. This is absolutely incredible. That's their perspective. And Why? It's not just the miracle that, that, that they just saw. It's the implication of that miracle. And so what I want to tell you today is that I think this passage is giving us a view of, of three aspects of the way that God is renewing all things through the gospel. Okay? So this passage we're going to get into in a moment is, first of all, giving us a future picture, a future hope. Secondly, this passage is giving us a current look at our current position. So there's a future aspect of a hope that we're going to have, and there's a current aspect of our current position right here, right now. And then lastly, this passage is going to give us, I think, just a glimpse into the role we play in initiating this renewal. So our future hope, our current position, and our role in initiating this renewal. So they're astonished beyond measure, picking back up in verse 37. Why are they so astonished? Yes, the miracle, of course, but what does that mean? So they say, he has done all things well. 
That, again, is a very tame way of saying this man is special. They're not just saying, like, wow, Jesus, everything he does, it seems to be, like, pretty good. You know, he's, he's good at everything he does. No, no, no. He does all things well. This man is unique and special. There's something about him. And we know that because of their very next sta- statement. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So anybody that's familiar with the Bible immediately hears that. And the, you know, the bells start going off in their head, the whistles, and the deaf hear, the mute speak. He, this guy makes the deaf hear and the mute speak? And all of you out here right now are like, of course, Isaiah 35. That's where we've heard that before, right? And so um, I'll turn to Isaiah 35 so you don't have to. So Isaiah 35, starting in verse 1, this is what the people are thinking when they say this. Oh, the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is a picture of our future hope and our future reality. Just listen to the words because I want you to feel what's going on, what Jesus is trying to illustrate through this healing. Isaiah 35, verse 1, it says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. I have no idea what a crocus is. I don't think it's important. Uh, It shall blossom abundantly, and it shall rejoice with joy and singing. Skipping down to verse 3. Here's here's what's going on in these people's, the they, the nameless, faceless they, in their mind and their heart when they're seeing this miracle. It says, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Your God will come. He will come and save you. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So they're looking at what Jesus is doing, and they're like, oh, this is it. This is the guy Isaiah was telling us about. Now, I want to pause for a little bit on this this concept of a future hope. Because I think it's really important for all of you to grab a hold of this in a very tangible way so that you can sink your teeth into it. Because if you're anything like me, you've probably come to church at various times, and you've been told something like this. If you accept Jesus in your heart then you can go to heaven forever. And if you're anything like me, you're like, what the heck does that mean? Like, what is this place heaven? I don't understand what that even means. Are we like floating around in clouds with like a diaper and like a harpsichord or something? Are we some sort of like bodiless spirits just, you know, bumping into each other? Like, what, what does that mean? What is heaven? I have no, I have no concept. It, it, heaven, it's just the clouds, I guess. Well, the Bible does use that language here and there. Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. He says things like, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth. Rather, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. But that that word is a euphemism for something much more awesome and physical and material. And so what I want to do is I just want to read for you two other passages briefly to just try to give you a sense of what our future reality is and the significance of it as it relates to this particular story. So one of them you're you're much more familiar with, Revelation 21. You've probably heard these words before. This is John on the Isle of Patmos. He has a vision of the future. And he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He didn't say I see heaven. I see a new heaven and a new earth. Now those words are a little confusing. I see a new sky and a new place with dirt. That's what he sees. 
I see, oh, there's sky and clouds, and it's a new one. And ground, dirt, oh, it's a new one. Okay, so there's a new land. For the former things are not, uh, for the former things have passed away. The first, earth, the first earth has passed away. Skipping to verse three, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. Verse five, behold, I make all things new. Behold, I am renewing all things. So you've got this picture, it's this future reality where there's an actual piece of land that you're on with God there dwelling with you. What what I'm saying is that it's not completely dissimilar to what you're experiencing here. It's not exactly the same by any means, but it's not completely dissimilar. Let me read you one more, one more passage to try to drive this home. Isaiah 65, same language. Isaiah 65, verse 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall, be remem- shall not be remembered or come into mind. Verse 20, this is, how, this is how the prophet describes this future reality. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. Verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Understand the activity that God is talking about for all eternity. Some of you might be like stuck in a dead-end job or some job that you're like, this is just not fulfilling. I don't enjoy it. What he's promising here is a future reality where you're going to be engaged in some, some type of work. You're going to be doing stuff, but it's going to have purpose and meaning and fulfillment. You're going to be living in houses. Look, I'm, I, I want you to feel how tangible and physical and real this is, okay? It could be, it could be that the new heaven and the new earth share a lot of similarities with San Diego. How about the weather, right? Wouldn't that be incredible? The shores of La Jolla, a beautiful sunset at Sunset Cliffs. Those are the things that we're going to experience, but better and for all eternity. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying what's not going to be there, what's not going to be there is the call from a doctor saying, I'm sorry to inform you that you have cervical cancer. What's not going to be there is someone with a debilitating issue like deafness or muteness, inability to walk. This is, this is our future reality, a reality without death and sickness, but a real physical reality that you can actually place your hope in. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is giving us just momentarily a picture so that when he sees this man who's got this, this infirmity, this, this issue, he can't hear, he can't speak, and he says, Epaphratha, be opened. In some sense, what's opening is the door above the threshold of eternity. It's swinging open. And spilling out is a view of our eternal reality. We will have bodies. We'll be living. We'll be in relationship with people and with our God dwelling with him. No issues of sickness or infirmity anymore. That is a tangible picture of our future hope. 
And God is asking you to put your hope in it. And I, I would just say, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, specifically I was considering this notion that we'll plant vineyards and, and do work and be doing things. And it could be some of you out here right now are full of anxiety and, um, and fear or, or anger because you're, you're thinking, man, if I could just have this particular job, this particular vocation, this particular promotion, man, then things would be right. Let me just suggest it's possible that God is so gracious and so loving that he will absolutely withhold that from you, maybe for the rest of this life, because he wants you to place your hope predominantly, almost exclusively in that future reality. So that's number one. God, Jesus does this healing because he wants to demonstrate the renewal of all things has to do with us putting our hope in this future will not be fully renewed right now. It'll be fully renewed then, and you can sink your teeth into it and put your hope in it. Okay, the second thing that Jesus is doing, I think, is he's giving us a picture, a little parable of our current condition and the way God currently renews all things in our lives right now. So later, then, we will be perfectly and completely renewed. Right now, we see the first fruits of it. Notice with me, in chapter 7, verse 32, that the issue for this man, the specific issue, is two things, a speech impediment and deafness. Now, that word speech impediment, some of your translations may translate it various ways, had trouble speaking. It's really unclear the degree to which he was unable to speak. Could he sort of groan or moan or could he speak, but it was just unclear what he's saying? Well, remember that when the people were praising him, they said the mute speak. The, the implication here is that he, was, he couldn't communicate. That's the implication. Now just notice with me that the real issue for him is not, it's not the physical disability. That's, that's, it's the implication of the physical disability. So growing up, some of you um, might remember these things. There were several of them in my house growing up. Some of you had them in your house, I'm sure. They would hang on a wall they have little cords coming out of them. You could pick them up and like press buttons and call people. You remember those things? Used to hang on walls, not in your pocket. It's a crazy thing. But what was significant about a phone is that it extended, unlike our current versions, which you know, could just be an earpiece or whatever, they actually extended from your ear all the way to your mouth. Why? You had a, um, a microphone here, and um, I can't think of the word that... Yeah, speaker, thank you. <laughs> the thing that stuff comes out of here at your, at your ear. And that's the primary means of communicating with people that aren't right in front of you, right? You talk and they talk. and you. So that's what this man is dealing with. I think what, what Mark is giving us is a picture of isolation. That's the real suffering that this man is going through. And let me just say that I think that the height of all human suffering is that, is isolation, is separation. I think that that is the height of human suffering. You are never in more pain than when you're alone, I guarantee it. And we can trace that back biblically to the notion of death. If any of you have ever been in, in one of my small groups, you've probably heard me say multiple times that biblically, the concept of death really is is separation. That's what it means. That's all that it means. It means separation. So physically, think about it for a moment with me. 
when we have a family member or a friend who passes away, their heart stops beating and their lungs stop moving, what's so tragic about that is not the fact that their heart's not beating. I could care less if your heart's beating or not. It's the implication of that. It's that I can't go and hug you and tell you I love you and hear you respond to me that you love me. Right? That's, that's why when we say things like so-and-so is dead to me, it doesn't mean they're dead. It means they're separated. They're no longer connected to me. That's what's going on in the Bible when we, we talk about death. See, you think that death is when your heart stops beating. And I'm telling you, no, that's a parable for death. That's a metaphor for death. Death happens when separation occurs. Let me prove it to you biblically. Remember the story in Genesis I had already brought up, Adam and Eve. They violate God's expectations and they eat the fruit. Now you remember the warning. All of you remember the warning, right? God said, in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Right? And you read the passage and you think to yourself, uh, what, uh, you know, God, are you lying? I don't, they didn't die. In fact, they live for like hundreds of years, have kids and so on and so forth. They're not dead. You said they were going to die. Oh, I get it. And then we come up with some weird term. Oh, they died spiritually. I don't even know what that means. Like there was something spirit that was ripped out. I don't know. That's not what happens. They died on the day that they rebelled. And here's how. On the day that they eat it, they get separated from God. So in the beginning, they're with God, dwelling with him in the land. They're living this future version, this future vision that we have. They're living it, right? And then they violate God's trust, fail to meet his expectations, and they get separated. They become no longer children of the garden. They're now out in the field somewhere else. And all of us, since Adam and Eve, we're born into that position. A separation from God has occurred. And so what we're getting here in this picture of healing is a picture of separation and what Jesus is going to do about that separation. How do we get that picture? Well, in verse 33, here's how Jesus deals with him. He takes this man aside from the crowd privately, and he puts his fingers in his ears, and in spitting, touches the man's tongue. Now, that's weird, kind of gross. There's three times that Jesus spits in the process of healing. One is here, you'll see another one in Mark 8, and there's another one in John. Now, I think, I really do, th in fact, um, some of you, I joked in the first service, I'll say it again, some of you may think that by the time I'm done with this, this is really a sermon on the book of Isaiah, maybe it is. But I, I actually think that when Mark writes this, this detail of Jesus spitting and touching, I think he's trying to call to mind, if you're at all familiar, with the story of Isaiah back in Isaiah chapter 6, if you remember. If you don't, I'll tell you real quick. So Jesus is the, or Isaiah is this prophet. He's called by God to go do things. And um, Isaiah says, wait, God, I can't. I can't go out and tell other people about you because I'm a man of unclean lips. And these people that I'm around, they're all unclean. We're all, we've all done things just like Adam and Eve that have caused us to be separated from you, right? And if you remember the story in Isaiah 6, God says, yeah, okay, well, I, I'll fix that. He takes a seraphim, an angel, who grabs a burning coal, and he touches Isaiah's lips. In verse 7, it says that's significant for God forgiving Isaiah of his sins. That's the point. It's this cleansing thing. So Jesus is doing that here. And I think that what Mark is doing as he records Jesus spitting and, and touching him is he's forecasting. He's foreshadowing what Jesus is going to do by the end of the gospel of Mark. 
to heal the issue of isolation. See, right now, Jesus is going to heal using, and again, this is sort of gross, but this bodily fluid, his spit. But eventually and eternally, he's going to heal through his blood. And that's what Mark is doing. He's foreshadowing. He's pushing us forward. And so let me just camp out for for just a minute on this idea. That what Christ is doing here in healing this man's isolation is, is a demonstration of how he is healing our isolation from him. One of the, the greatest verses in the Bible, I know it's one of Josh's favorite, it's certainly one of mine, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is the, the verse that sort of sums up the great transaction that happens in the gospel. And it says, For he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. This is the whole idea of the cross. Jesus goes to the cross and takes the sin of the world on his back in order that we could stand in his place of goodness, of having not violated God's expectations and be reunited with God. So we're out here in the field with Adam and Eve, both by by birth and then also by the stupid decisions we make throughout our lives. And Jesus is over here in the garden dwelling in unity with the Father, and he says, okay, I am gonna take, I'm going to come out here to the field and I'm going to take your place. And so I used in the first service, and I'll, I'll do it again, there's sort of a courtroom analogy that you might have heard, that this is how the gospel works, right? That, that uh, you're brought into this courtroom and uh, you're getting read this list of charges against you. You know, you've, you've said terrible things, you've violated people's trust, you've hurt people, you've hurt yourself, you've turned your back on God at various times in your life. You're being read this list of charges And God the Father is sitting there with a gavel and he's pronouncing your guilt and right before he slams the gavel, he says you're guilty. Right before he pronounces the judgment, Jesus steps in and says, I'll do the time. I'll do the time. Don't worry about it. You've heard that before, right? If you haven't, well, there you go. You've heard it. That's an illustration I used to hear when I was younger. But it's an incomplete illustration of the gospel. It's incomplete. And this is the piece that's so crucial you've got to understand is that in fact, it's not that Jesus is just coming in taking the consequence of our decisions and the decisions of Adam. It's not just the consequence, it's the very sense of guilt from those. So here's the real analogy. Here's how it really works. So same courtroom, you're in this courtroom, and God the Father, the judge, is sitting there with it, and he reads the list of things, the charges against you. Before he slams the gavel and says, guilty, Jesus stands up and says, no, 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 no. That man's innocent. That woman is innocent. I'm the one. I'm the one upon, who's, upon, uh, upon who the guilt should rest. That's the idea of the gospel. That's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus experiences on the cross the sense of not just the things that you and I have done. Remember, we're talking here about about suffering that's not just the result of someone's own decisions, but that is the result of a decaying world. And this is what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's righting the wrong of Genesis 3. He's taking the sin of Adam on his back. He's experiencing, Jesus is experiencing death. Let it sink in for just a minute. God, 
Jesus, God who cannot die, experiences death on our behalf. What did I just tell you that death is? It's separation. So Jesus on our behalf is going to experience the sense of separation, the agony of separation from God the Father in this moment on the cross. And the point of that is that you and I will never have to experience that separation. So if we're in Christ, not just in our future reality, but right here, right now. So we've got this man, and he is healed from his deafness and his muteness. Now, that doesn't mean that all suffering has been taken away from him for the rest of his life. But what it does mean is that he goes through life and he suffers. He can call out to God for help and call out to people. Now, I don't want to go too far on that analogy because, of course, God hears your prayers in your own head, regardless of whether you're able to speak or speaking in general. But, that's, but that is the parable. That's the illustration that God is giving us. So in the first case, future hope, epaphrathah, is like swing open the doors of eternity and out spills our future hope. And in the second sense, epaphrathah, be opened, is Mark foreshadowing what he's going to tell us in Mark 15, 37, and 38. And Jesus on the cross uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn open from top to bottom allowing us entry into the presence and place of God. So God gives us a future hope. God gives us a present reality where we're united with Christ. You can be united with God forever and ever and ever, never to be separated from him, never to taste death in the sense of separation from God. But watch how he does this. Watch how Jesus does this. So picking back up in verse... um, 33. This is really key. Jesus takes the man away from the crowd privately. So here's what I want you to understand on a very personal and granular level. When God starts to do a work of renewal in your life, it's going to be a personal thing. That's not to say it won't be other people might be involved and and so on and so forth, but God is going to be doing something personal in your life. You'll, You'll feel it. Here's how personal God will get. God takes the man who's deaf, and he, Jesus puts his ear right there, or puts his finger right in the ear. He can't speak, so Jesus spits on his hand and puts his finger right on the guy's tongue. So this is what's going to happen in your life. <laughs> Jesus is going to be pressing in on those areas of most vulnerability. Right? Where it's like, ah, oh, that... That's precisely where it hurts, and I just want you to heal. And Jesus says, that's what I'm doing, as he presses in on it. You're going to feel this. And what I want you to do is, is as God is ratcheting up the pressure in some area in your life, and just ratchet, 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 and it just doesn't seem to stop, and the pressing is just, I just want you to take heart that that may be one of the surest signs that God is doing an incredible work of transformation and renewal in your own heart. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about briefly is our role. So what role do we play in this process, this process of renewal? 
Well, two things at least, or sort of one thing and, and not the other. I'll explain in a second. But um, we can always be the they, right? They're, like I said, they're sort of the heroes of the stories, this nameless, faceless they. Okay, so look, with any luck, if you're walking with Jesus with any luck, you're going to live a life in which you sacrifice for other people a bunch, do a bunch of great things, and people come to know Jesus as a result of you loving on them, and then one day you'll die and no one will ever remember your name. Right? That's our hope. That people remember the name of Jesus in the story, not the nameless, faceless they. But what do they do that's so crucial? They bring this man to Jesus and they beg Jesus on behalf of this man. So that's one thing you can be doing. Maybe you're sitting in here and you're like, look, I, I get it, but I don't really feel the ratchet in my life right now. No one's pressing on me. I, like Things are going pretty good. There are people in your life that are feeling that. And you get to identify them and drag them to Jesus, maybe not physically and maybe not by badgering them, maybe in the quietness of your own heart as you plead with Christ on their behalf. Right? So that's one thing that we get to do. But let me ask you a second question. <clears throat> and this, I think, if you let it sink deep down in your heart, will just be an amazing source of joy and gratitude for you. Okay? So here's the last, last thing. What does the deaf man do to bring about renewal? What does he do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. His friends drag him. They beg Jesus on his behalf. Jesus pokes him and prods him. He's not commended for his great faith. He doesn't come up there and, and, and go seek out Jesus on his own. No, no, no. Jesus just does a work in his life. And there are times when God is just initiating this and, and you have nothing to do with it. When Jesus says, Epaphrathah, be open, it's as though we hear the echo of Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. I place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one will shut. That Jesus says, be open. This man, he couldn't have said, no, 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 I want my ears to stay shut and my tongue. No, 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 he, he, he didn't get to play that part. Jesus was going to do a work in his life. And Jesus did it. Now, most of you know um, that know me know that I am um, not a, a huge fan of what I like to call contemporary Christian music. Um, I grew up listening to punk rock and hip-hop and things like that. So, um, you know, I'm more in the, the vein of the Descendants and things. But, um, but there is one band that I've appreciated throughout my, my time walking with Jesus. And um, one song in particular, this band is called Cademan's Call. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of them. One song in particular has always struck me. It's a song called Thankful. Uh, it's, when I say not contemporary, I think this is like early 90s or something, so definitely not contemporary anymore. But the words in that song, they describe in particular this idea that sometimes God will just initiate and that he's going to do a work in your heart and he's just, he's just going to do it. And they're talking here about the healing of Lazarus, which takes place in John 11. But I think it's a very similar very similar type of, type of miraculous healing that takes place. And so let me just read for you as the band starts playing. Let me just read for you the words from this song. I think it's incredible. They say, we're all stillborn and dead in our transgressions. 
shackled up by the sin that we hold so dear. They ask the question, what part do I play in your plan of redemption? Because I can't refuse, and I've got nothing to add to the equation. I, I don't add anything. Because I'm just like Lazarus. I'm just like this deaf man. I can hear your voice. I stand up, I rub my eyes, and I walk to you because I have no choice. God may be doing some incredible work in your heart. And this is what I'm going to leave you with. Again, if you're not in this position of of anxiety or fear or some sort of debilitating issue going on in your life, great. Be praying, identifying and praying for those in your life who are. And if you are in that position like the deaf man, just feeling the pressure ratchet and ratchet and ratchet, please, please take heart and know that Jesus may be doing some incredible work of transformation and renewal in your life. Thank you.